to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. Thanks, guys. We're continuing our journey in the Sermon of the Mount this morning. And uh, might I just say, it's on anger. I am the least qualified person to preach on this topic, all right? So I want you to all feel at ease. I'm not pointing the finger at anybody, right? Um, and I want you to know that uh, God has got freedom here for us this morning. And so as I preach... Thank you so much, Shane. I only preach because I believe that what Jesus is offering out here today is life. Okay. Right. So let's read in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, this is Jesus saying, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and they remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, Jesus is being deadly serious, truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Hectic, eh? So, I want to deal with this part in two parts. Today, I want to just deal with this first part that Jesus mentions, starting with us. And then next week, we're going to talk about how do we make right, starting with others. Because Jesus divides this two quite carefully. He uses the word so in Matthew chapter 5, verse 23. He makes a conclusion, or he adds then on in light of what he's just said. But I want to remind you how we got here. Remember this sermon, please, it's so important. It's two disciples, which are called followers. If you ask me what a Christian is, somebody asks you, what, what is a Christian? You say, a follower of Jesus. That's who we are. And so, again, I want to emphasize, this is not a rule book. I'm going to make out why lately. It's not a, a code that you obey, a code of ethics. It is all flowing from a relationship, a love relationship, a pursuit of a person called Jesus. And this pursuit of Jesus in every area of your life is very important. I mean that deadly seriously. Every area of your life you are seeking, living, longing to please Jesus. If you live like that, you will never be the same again. Those, these Beatitudes, they are congratulations of what happens in a believer, a follower, a disciple of Jesus' life, a disciple's life who follows Jesus. And so talks about these congratulations, this radical transformation. And the effect of this, of this transformation in your life, it leads to an impact on the world around you. You look different, you're called light. You taste different, you're called salt. That the world around you begins to experience a little bit of what this kingdom of heaven looks like and feels like and sounds like because that's what's happening in your life. You're looking more and more like the one you love, Jesus. Now, 
Jesus has to step in and say, guys, I just want to remind you because you're thinking about the question. Jesus has not mentioned anything about the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments and the 600 and something other commandments that come with that when dealing with how to live this transformed life. It's very important that. In actual fact, Jesus says, guys, if you're going to follow me, your righteousness, in other words, you being right with God in every single area of your life, that's your hunger and thirst, the fifth beatitude that you, that you, fourth beatitude that you're after. This hunger and thirst for righteousness, it must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. The very guys that were obeying the law to the hilts, he's saying your righteousness has to go beyond that. Someone tells you, you must keep the law of Moses. You tell them, I'm very sorry. That law is too low for me. That's what you say. Jesus came to fulfill the law, and which you do in spirit. The righteousness of the law, the disciple of Christ never breaks. He or she themselves fulfill the law. Ah, but Jesus says, that's too low for you. You have to go beyond that. Your righteousness must exceed that. I want you to go way beyond the letter. Can I explain it to you this morning? When you live by a rule book, or a code of ethics, all you are interested in is whether you are doing it or not. Not so? When you start to live by the Spirit, suddenly the motivation behind what you do or what you don't do becomes the issue. See, the Spirit takes you much deeper. So you can start to get at the heart. The law can't get at the heart. The law can only get what's coming out, the external deeds. Ah, no, no. Jesus says, that's not the standard for the Christian. The standard for the Christian is not like these Pharisees who can be so angry on the inside. These whitewashed tombs look so nice on the outside. Meanwhile, they're full of jealousy. They're full of wrath. They're full of envy. No, no. The Christian disciple, the follower of Jesus, oh, man, through the power of the Spirit, through the relationship with Christ made real through the Spirit, become totally transformed from the inside out. Remember what Jesus said, it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. And so what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, guys, you need to go beyond the law. The law is too low for you. And that's what he's saying here in verse 21. He starts to unpack in illustrations what it is like step by step. And the first is this, is the sixth commandment. He says, you know, from of old, they heard, I'll read it to you, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. He's talking about the moment when Israel was in front of the Mount Sinai. And did you know in Exodus 20 that God spoke the Ten Commandments from that cloud of fire and smoke and ash? They heard the audible commandments from the voice of God. They were terrified. And Jesus says, you've heard that before the law of Moses said that you shall not murder. I say to you on my own authority, forget about murdering. Don't do that, yes, but don't even get angry. And you see, it's an external righteousness and an internal righteousness. And Jesus unpacks this powerfully in this section. It's awesome language. I mean, the Greek, it's something else. But for us today, Jesus is deadly serious about anger. Why? Because the fastest way to grieve the Spirit in your life, this Holy Spirit that makes Jesus real to us, that makes this kingdom open to us, that leads us into the fullness of God in our lives, this Holy Spirit that we live by, we walk by, Paul says, this, the fastest way to grieve it in your life where he withdraws is a sensitive person, is anger. Can I remind you what Paul says in Ephesians 4 verse 30 to 31? And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The very next verse is, let all bitterness, 
as internal anger and wrath and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Paul knows, Paul knows, the fastest way for the kingdom to be blocked in your life, life and mine, it's through anger. Anger is very real. But anger is very critical. Because anger is an emotion. Can I just say, the reason why preaching on anger this morning is so difficult is because when you start to deal with emotions, these emotions, they are God-given. They are not evil. Some of us have been trained that any form of anger, it's wrong. I used this morning at the 8th the example of my parents. My mother is British, right? And in, their mar- in her parents' marriage, it was stiff upper lip. You never got angry about anything. You always were so cool and calm. Like so, my mother, in all of her years of knowing her mother and father, never saw them fight once. Sorry, Sarah. <laughs> That's happened in my family already. My father, on the other hand, whoa. Conflict every single day. He had a rough childhood. My dad has got no problem with conflict. He was raised in it. And for him, he's on the other end of the spectrum. He's got no problem actioning what he feels. My mother's suppressed, suppressed. My father's express, express. That's the difference, not so? And I really want to help us here. I grew up with this understanding. I don't know how it, but it happens, in church especially, where we say anger's wrong. No, my friend, anger is not wrong. Anger is an emotion. Do you know, it's part of you feeling human. It's part of God's image in us. Isn't that amazing? Do you know that God gets angry? He does. And so for us today, if you're going to think any anger is wrong, no, 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 that's not helpful. Psychologists, my little bit of reading say, if you repress or suppress anger, it helps for a little bit, but it doesn't help in the long term because you start to feel side effects of what's going on inside of you. We have to come to a place as Christians where we experience emotional wholeness. And part of emotional wholeness is this. We want to say it is well with our soul. It is learning how emotions work inside of us in a healthy way. And so I want to quickly unpack that anger, it's neutral. When you feel angry, the fact that you feel angry is not necessarily sinful. What makes anger sinful or not is what it is rooted in. Can I stress that? What is the cause of that anger? Tim Keller puts it well when talking about emotions. It says, like anger, anger is the smoke that leads you to the fire. (laughs) Maybe that's a good bang. (laughs) That's anger. But I want to say to you this morning, there is such a thing of there being anger and not being sinful. Don't you think it's amazing? In in Ephesians chapter 4, I think it's verse 20, Paul can say, be angry and do not sin. And I want to just try my best today to explain the difference between what is righteous anger, anger without sin, versus what is unrighteous anger. Can I put it to you like this? Sometimes in life, if you don't get angry, it's sinful. Sometimes in life, actually very often in life, when you get angry, it's sinful. How do we know the difference? Well, unrighteous anger, I mean, righteous anger, excuse me. How do you know it's operating? Righteous anger is operating when there is the absence of the ego. It's so important. It's not about settling a score. 
It's not about even who's right or who's wrong. Your reputation is not on the line. The reputation that's on the line is God's. And it's an absence of this personalized anger. It's an absence of the ego being offended or frustrated. This righteous anger is being stirred by something outside of ourselves. And the typical examples of this in Scripture are the moment when Moses comes down from Mount Sinai. They've just heard the Ten Commandments audibly, and Moses takes a bit of time. You know what the people actually say? They are so scared of God. They say, Moses, you go up with Joshua so that you can get God's commands. We're going to move away from God because we're too afraid to get close to him. And Moses goes up and Joshua goes up and they take their time, about 40 days. In the meantime, those Israelites build this statue or this idol called the golden calf. And when Moses comes down with the handwritten Ten Commandment tablets and sees us, the, the, the scripture is very open. It says in, in Exodus chapter 32, verse 19, he burns with anger and he throws the tablets down and he smashes them. What's happening there? He is so moved. He's just been in the presence of God. That's so important. He's just experienced the powerful presence of God. And here he comes down to the very people that God has saved. God has rescued. God has fed. God has clothed. God has protected. God has led. God has done amazing things for this nation above any other nation in the world. And not only within 40 days, they are already forsaking him. If Moses did not get angry at that moment, for God's sake, it would have been sin. Paul walking through Athens, and it says his spirit's provoked. He sees all of these idols everywhere. Something inside of him gets angry that these people live in darkness. Or how about Jesus himself? There he is. It's, it's a heartbreaking verse. The more I meditate on it, the more my heart bleeds. Because here is this man in the synagogue, here where people of God are supposed to be gathering. Isn't it amazing? Here's this man with his withered arm, and he cannot work. Do you know, if you had a withered arm, you could not go into the temple. Nothing deformed, nothing unclean could get into the presence of God. And here are these guys. Jesus is about to heal him, and all they can think about is this is on the Sabbath. If you heal this man, you're breaking the law. And Jesus gets angry and grieved because of their hardness of heart. What's happening there? These people are supposed to know the heart of God. These people, these Pharisees, they're supposed to carry the fragrance of God in the world. These Israelites are supposed to know that this God is compassionate and that they're living proof of it. And Jesus gets angry because they're misrepresenting the heart of the Father. And he heals this man. And this man gets to enjoy the full covenant of God through this healing. Well, how about when Jesus makes a whip and drives out those profiteers in the temple? It says, zeal for his father's house consumed him. Righteous anger is when it is something supernatural. When the Spirit shows you what the Spirit sees, you begin to feel what the Spirit is feeling on behalf of God. And when that happens, you start to burn. And if you do not act to address what God is stirring in you, my friend, you are sinning. Can I say that? You are not extending the kingdom. Righteous anger always extends the kingdom because it advances righteousness. Unrighteous anger always pulls it back. And so for us, I will say this morning that righteous anger, it is supernatural, it is uncommon, it is very rare. But Martin Lloyd-Jones is right. The closer you move towards God, in other words, the holier you become as a person, the more sin angers you. I'll just say this. I could preach a whole sermon on this. But you notice what the first line of the, Father's, of the Lord's prayer is? Our Father, who art in heaven, 
hallowed, holy, keep separate, keep honored, keep pure, keep righteous, keep glorified, your name. That's what we're after. And then the very next thing is your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is what righteous anger brings down. That is what moved the Father to compel Jesus to the cross. Was his wrath against sin. And that is when the kingdom moves forward. It is through righteous anger. Ah, but today, (laughs) I need to talk about unrighteous anger because that's what Jesus talks about. What is the root of unrighteous anger? Well, there's two things. The first is, do you know what it is? It is a hurt ego. It's when our egos feel threatened, ignored, rejected, criticized, snubbed, humiliated, unfairly treated. The list goes on and on and on. Did you know that most of anger is because of a hurt? But the problem of identifying the hurt is the anger gets so strong so quickly, it overwhelms the feeling of hurt. So when people say, you actually, you actually hurt here. You actually got an issue. No, no, I'm angry. You can't associate the two. But the second one is this. The first is a hurt ego. The second is frustration. Frustration is when you experience an obstacle to ego. You've got an achievement. You've got a goal. You've got to get somewhere. You've got to get something done. And something comes in the way of you achieving it. And the anger is parallel to how precious that goal is. Very simple explanation. How's the time? Happens to me often. When you're running late and there's a granny in front of you, no offense to our lovely Sterling Silvers, and you see the, the robot turning orange, go! Go! Just go! Put your foot down! And eventually they go so slow they get over the white line and it turns red and you're late. It's got nothing to do with the, the granny was just there, but she was in your way. How about this one? You're riding and you're on your way to work. And then the taxi pulls over in front of you and starts to unload all of its precious passengers. And they're not precious in your eyes. In actual fact, all you see is red. Well, how about this one? I'm just confessing my sin, yeah. It's lunchtime. You've got one hour. You're going to the bank. There's one teller. The, lo- the queue is going out the door. You're looking at your watch. It's got- I've only got like half an hour. Can't these people just get some more people in here? I'm sure that they can take their tea breaks at other times. That's what we have to do. And don't they realize that I've got things to do. And then what's happening? You're standing in the line. You know, these people, where's the manager? What's going on? And then you see a staff member of the bank sipping a cup of coffee in the office. Do something. I'm late. Do something. I've got to get somewhere. You get so angry, not so? Can I say, when frustration is operating, my friends, watch out. It causes damage. I say? I'm sharing my poor little girl. She's two and a half. She's got a concentration span of a goldfish. I'm late. Sarah, eat your breakfast. How many times have I told you to eat your breakfast? I've got to go. I haven't brushed your teeth. I haven't brushed your hair. You have to do everything for them. I haven't changed. I haven't potted you. I haven't done anything. Will you just hurry up? Daddy's late. Frustration. My poor little girl. I'm working on it. This is for me today, as you can see. And Jesus here is talking about Anger against a brother. He is talking about an issue. Either the brother or sister is in the way of what you want to achieve or is making you look bad so that you're not achieving what you think you should. Does that make sense? Bosses, oh, please be careful here. Don't personalize the performance of your employees to the point that your whole ego shatters when they make a mistake. What about 
hurts. This is what Jesus is talking into, hurts. Either we've caused the hurt or we've experienced the hurt. That's how it happens. We've caused hurt because of our frustration. We've, we've experienced hurt because of rejection in some form. Anger comes in many ways. And there's four ways. There's only four ways you can do something with anger. The first is too many of us, I think, as Christians, I do it myself, is just repress. You deny it's there. And psychologists, well, a little bit I read. I can be corrected. Please, I'm welcome it. But they said it actually works for a little bit, but after a while, it causes huge problems. Same with suppressing it. That's the second one, is when you, you can smile and say good morning, but you can't stand them in your heart. The third is when you express it. <laughs> and generally, when it's at this point, anger is not sanctified. <laughs> Makes Pompeii look like a little molehill. And you, you get to the point where you get the fourth, which is what we are aiming for today. It's when we confess it. That's the right way to do it. We recognize and we confess it. We deal with it. Now, why is it so important that we deal with unrighteous anger quickly? Can I just quickly unpack this? Because the text is so strong. The text is so strong. I cannot deny that this morning. Jesus is tough on anger. I, I, if you read this, he is deadly serious. Well, firstly, I mean, the obvious one is it wrecks our physical, emotional, and mental health. Do you know that some psychologists will write and say that anger is the mental saboteur. You cannot think objectively. You cannot think in a reasoned and, and thoughtful. You are just, you're all over the place. There's no objectivity when anger comes in. The second is that, bring, this is really serious. It brings us under the judgment of God as Christians. Remember, Jesus is talking to disciples here. He's not talking to the unsaved. He's talking to those who've already received the kingdom through poverty of spirit, through poorness of spirit. And he's saying, Christians, if there is unrighteous anger undealt with in our hearts, judgment comes down on us. And it's the judgment of a father. That's important. Not an impartial judge. And the more angry we become, in this text we'll see, the more dangerous the spiritual consequences are. At each step, God's racking up the consequences for unrepentant, unrighteous anger. The third is that it brings us under judgment from other people. There's a point when internal anger becomes external. And let me tell you, I'm, I've lived it and I'm sure you have. When you've given in to unrighteous anger, you lose the respect of those around you. Not so. Nobody respects a wrathful person. Bosses, dads, nobody respects a wrathful person. They might be fearful you and cringe in your presence, but when you leave the door, let me tell you, they have a lot to say about your behavior. It will also block our communion with God. Notice, it's powerful. In verse 23, here comes somebody to offer up their gift to the altar. Oh, praise you, Jesus. Praise you, Father. He was still talking about when the, guys, the law was still yet to be fulfilled. There was temple worship. And there, there they're going to offer the gift. And God says, I'm sorry. You can keep me waiting. You have to go sort it out before you can have communion with me. Is our spiritual experience, and we know this in our hearts, our spiritual experience of God is, is totally affected by unrighteous anger. What was so clean and so pure and so open and so rejoicing and so easy in the presence of God when we were coming before we got angry. When we come after we got angry and it's undealt with, oh man, it's just so awkward. Not so. And as you're praying, the same thing pops into your head over, and you've got to deal with it, you've got to deal with it, you've got to deal with it. Ah! No peace. It also causes 
And this is the big thing. This is the big thing. Please. You've got to hear Jesus' heart on this. Why does he use brother? Why does Jesus say everyone who is angry with their brother? And the Greek word for brother, Adolfoy, can be used for brother and sister. It's the same thing. When we say, um, when the man, we talk about mankind, it's the same thing. When a brother, why does he use brother or sister? He's talking to disciples. He's talking about his Christian community. Can I be tender today and just remind you that unrepentant, unrighteous anger damages fellowship. And God is wanting to raise up his church as salt and light. He's saying, when, when the world looks at you, I want them to see a model of how people deal with anger so that there is grace flowing, there's unity flowing. When there's issues, it's dealt with in a brotherly and sisterly affectionate manner. It's not left to fester. Because the thing that splits churches and the thing that damages the witness of a church, it is unrighteous, unrepentant anger. And Archie Kendall, and I think he's right, he's, he makes it a step further. He says, the reason why Jesus uses brother is because the people who are closest to us hurt us the most and cause the greatest anger, not so. And so I want to also move into this last point of this section of why is it so important to deal with anger? Because unrighteous anger grows, not so. I'm living proof of it. You are living proof of it. If we don't deal with anger at a seed form, it grows into a forest, a jungle. And what begins to happen is what is internal. That's what Jesus is explaining here. First of all, when you're angry, he says everyone who's angry with a brother is liable to judgment. Who can judge that? Only God. Who can judge if you're really angry in your heart towards someone else? Only God. What begins is internal, private matter affair where God says, hey, you've got a problem here. If it's left undealt with, what happens next? How does anger come out? Unrighteous anger, it comes out through our mouths, not so. What's boiling in our hearts bursts out of our mouths. And that's when Jesus says, if anybody insults his brother, calls him raka. It's a horrible term in Greek. It's saying you dumb skull, you nitwit, you've got no intellect, you're empty, you've got no uh, brains. That insulting of God, it is the next phase of how anger bursts out. It comes out through our mouths. And if that is left unchecked, it grows into the worst form of anger. It's what some commentators call anger that kills. It's when you say, you fool, you're nothing, you piece of rubbish. I've got zero respect for you. It's when your anger has gotten so strong and you feel so justified, you feel so superior, you feel so vindicated because you've won all the arguments in your head and you've won all the arguments in your heart and you haven't responded to anything that the Lord has given you to work on or to respond to. When you are in that place, man, you are ready to kill. Why? With your mouth or with your hands? Because you feel so superior. This person's nothing. You can take them out. The world will be a better place if they're gone. That's how it works. It's awful. It's awful. And just as there are degrees of anger, Jesus shows there are degrees of judgment. Notice what happens first. Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Who's doing the judging? It is your relationship with God. The second, can I, can I tell you, I'm, I cannot express this strongly enough. 
I've experienced it, and you have if you've taken your walk with Jesus seriously. The second unrighteous anger comes into your heart, the second the Holy Spirit moves away. The judgment is God is saying, if you will break fellowship in your heart with another brother or sister, I will break fellowship with you. He's not saying I'll break the relationship. He's saying, if you don't sort this out in its seed form, I'm taking it deadly seriously. You will not be able to have communion with me. The second is this. Is that it says, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. If God can't get you at the seed form through the Holy Spirit, between you and him, if he's coming to you again and again and you're resisting him, the only other way he can do it is through external people. That's the council. In the Mosaic law, you had councils in each village, about 22 men. You had to judge these external offenses. And the reason why people can start to judge is because it's, the anger is becoming external. What was just a private affair in your heart between this person and God was, into, God was looking at now becomes an You've said, rocker, you've insulting. Your behavior is becoming public. It's no longer private. And so because the Spirit couldn't reach you, now God has to reach you through external people, and that's how it works. In your family, your brothers or sisters had to call you on things and say, that's out of line. Your boss has to bring you in for a disciplinary hearing. Your behavior is out of line. In the church, it has to happen. There's a council that has to deal with these matters. When it becomes public and repeated and unrepented, guys, it's the only way God can get at us is through people. And if we resist that, something breaks. It leads to the last and most dangerous form of anger. And in this space, you and I, when we reach this level of anger, when we are so, so vindicated, we are so superior in our feeling because we feel we're right. This person has wronged us. I have to get this thing sorted out. I have to get back. I have to get even. I have to prove myself. When it gets to that point, we are only reachable by the grace of God. Can I tell you, it has happened in my life. I'll share a story of what happened to me. I went through a very, very rebellious stage when I was a teenager. And my parents were the, the wonderful couple in the church. They led worship. My mother did Sunday school. You know what it's like. I'd grown up in the church. The pastor had raised me. And I went through a period in my life when I started to use my influence as a guy that was a leader in the church to lead a little bit of a rebellion. And I remember distinctly, I walked into a church service once. And I was trying to distract everybody from worshiping Jesus. My pastor, whom I love, he raised me. <laughs> he came to me and he said, in the spirit, when it's here, righteous anger, he said to me, Matthew, you better stop what you're doing and sort yourself out. And I tell you, that day, something gripped me in the Lord. I didn't see what I was doing, but in my, in my, in my anger, in my rebelliousness, that this, I get dragged to church. This is what, I've got to do this every Sunday. Man, and they had worship practice. They had cell. They had all these. In my rebellion, I was rebelling against God and leading others in doing it. And God had to deal with me on that day. I tell you, I left that church, and I was so humbled. I couldn't stay in the worship service. I went for a long walk, and I just repented. I said, Lord, I'm so sorry. And this is the story of what happens with David. David, here is this man, the anointed king of Israel, the one through whom Jesus is going to come. And here, he, he looks after a guy's stuff called Nabal. Nabal means fool in Hebrew. You know how he was a fool? I'll show you now. 
David protects all of Nabal's flocks from brigands and robbers. And when David is in need, there is a moment that he needs some help from the guy that he's protecting. He sends his young men to Nabal. He says, Nabal, I need a help. I need a loan. I need, I, need some, I need some food. I need some refreshment. I need some help. And Nabal says, I'm not giving you a stitch. Who do you think you ought to ask me? When those young men come back to David, and David starts to hear what Nabal has said, he says immediately, strap your swords into your... We're going to go kill this guy. And what does God have to do? What does God? He has to send Abigail. And yeah, Abigail, by the grace of God, hears what happens. And she knows, this man's going to kill my husband. This man's going to do something that he's going to sin against God. And God sends Abigail. And she runs. And what happens in 1 Samuel 25? She says to David, she flings herself on him. David, please, please, don't take this guy's life into your hands. Let God be the one who sorts him out. And David is rescued from committing a terrible, terrible sin. And so today, the consequences of this final form of anger, it is the most serious in all of Scripture. It is experiencing the fires of hell. Because at this stage, when you are so out of control by your anger, you cannot even see the wood for the trees. You've lost all objectivity. You're on a hell-bent path to commit murder either with your mouth or either with your hands. It is this person's going to be annihilated. You've got no time for them. You've got zero respect for them. They've got to get out of your way. What is Jesus saying? I'll tell you the first thing is this you will begin to experience hell on earth. It is experiencing zero fellowship with Jesus Christ. You are at such a place when the Spirit can no longer have fellowship with you because of unrighteousness. It is a terrible place to be. The voice of the Lord is silent. The hand of the Lord is far away. Though He's gazing at your life, there is no participation with heaven. You're on your own path without His covering and protection. You're on your way to a serious consequence of committing serious sin. But secondly, what does it mean eternally? Does it mean that we lose our salvation? I will say no, and I'll explain to you in just a reason, just a moment's time. The second is this, do these hellfire, what does it mean, Jesus mean the hell of fire? What does that mean? Does it mean that you were never saved if you experience or express this sort of anger and you're unrepentant and you die in it? Does it mean that you're never, you were never ever born again? Maybe, perhaps, I can't judge that. But Jesus is talking to Christians. He's talking to disciples. He's talking to people that have already, through their poverty of spirit, left the crowds, left the world, gone up to the mountain to say, I'm following you. So what does it mean that we can experience the hell of fire? Well, in 1 Corinthians 13, it's very, very clear that there is a possibility, there is a moment that we are saved but as if through fire. And Paul is saying, in your life, in my life, if we are resistant to the Spirit's leading and resistant to the correction that God wants to bring, we will forfeit something in glory. 
And the works, the things that tested in 1 Corinthians 13 is the works of our life, our faithfulness to Jesus, our faithfulness through trial and through suffering. I don't have time to explain it, but you know what suffering and trial achieves the side of the, the grave? 1 Peter 1 says, refining. You pass through fire now so that what you bring through the final fire comes through to glory. And what Paul is saying here, and the Hebrews, right to the Hebrews as well, says in Hebrews 12, be careful not to miss the grace of God. What is he saying? The very next part of that is, if there's any root of bitterness that takes place in our hearts, we're going to miss the kingdom. We won't be able to enter into the fullness of the kingdom. The grace of God that comes to us to repent will be resisted. And if it passes us by, we're going to lose something. Is when we are salted and our works are tested by this righteous fire that burns up all unrighteousness, so that what enters into heaven is only righteous. If it's applied to unrighteous anger, any work done in unrighteous anger will be burnt up. And you remember King Saul. Just think about this for a moment. What was King Saul obsessed with? Murdering David, not so? Did his line move the kingdom forward? No. He lost his kingship. He lost what God wanted to give him. He lost the privilege of having Christ come from his lineage. Did he go to heaven? Yes, we know that. Because when he calls up the, 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 the witch, calls up the spirit of Samuel, Samuel says to Saul, you'll be with me. You and your sons will be with me. That's crazy grace of God. God even keeps Saul. Saul. Saul is saved. But he says, if we're not careful, when that fire is applied to our lives, we're going to miss it. Hellfire is to burn up all unrighteousness. That's how it works. So that when we come through in glory, what's left is righteous. So, I tell you all this for one reason only, is that unrighteous anger never helps anybody. And it's quite straightforward to deal with. There are just five things that you'd have to do. The first is you have to recognize it. Can you say this morning, yes, I'm angry. It's not that easy. Can you say, yes, I'm angry? The second is, can you confess that? That's the second thing. Confession is saying, although I'm angry, I know it's wrong. Some of us know we're angry. We think it's right. No, sir? Confession is saying, God before you, I know this thing is wrong. It is so liberating. Because it leads to the third step, which is repentance. Repentance is this. You can only repent when you recognize it's wrong. You can only lay something down when you're willing to say, that's not worth it. It's not right. And repentance prevents what psychologists call ruminating. You know what ruminating is? You know a cow that chews the, the grass and then he vomits it up in his mouth and that's what anger's like. And you think about it, you think about it, you know, oh, yes, oh, yes. And you swallow it, oh, yeah. You swallow it down. No, no, no. And it comes up. When you repent, you are saying every time it comes to get the taste of anger in your mouth, you spit it out. You don't swallow it. Get out don't want you in my life. The fourth is, 
is it leads us to the place of humility before God, which leads to forgiveness. I want to talk about what you have to do next week to make things right. But you can't make things right unless you're right with God. Unless you're right in your spirit towards that person. And so that's the four things I want us to do right now. It's recognition. Don't suppress it. Don't repress it. And if you've blown up, just recognize it's wrong. Okay. It's okay. The second is we confess it. We say, Lord, that was wrong. Please. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. The third is you go, I'm repenting. When that stuff wants to come up again, I spit it out. I don't tune it and swallow. And the fourth is this. We exercise forgiveness of the other person and ourselves. Don't leave that last step out. Ourselves. Yes, the blood of Jesus is not just for them and for the mistakes you made towards it. The blood of Jesus is for us. Isn't that wonderful? And then the fifth is reconciliation we'll look at next week. Let's pray. Father, I pray right now. I pray right now that, Lord, you would open our hearts and reveal, for some of us maybe for the first time, some of us as a reminder of any undealt with anger. Lord, time never heals unrighteous anger, never. We can bury it, it's always there. And so, Lord, I pray right now, would you speak to us? And I want you, if a person comes to mind, or an action comes to mind, or a moment comes to mind, I want you to take it as from the Spirit. It might be in your marriage, might be with your children, might be with your colleague, might be with your fellow Christian, might be with your leader. It might even be with God. Can I say that today? I've had to recognize I've had anger at God. I want you to think about that person, however it's come. And I want you to confess it to the Lord this morning. And you, this is how you do it. This is how you confess. You say, Father, you are right, and I am wrong. Please forgive me. Will you say that to God? Say, this anger, you're right in it. I was wrong about it. I held on to it. Please forgive me. Can you do that? And then the third is, would you tell God this morning, would you say to him, Father, would you please help me never to go back to it again? Father, would you please help me never to go back to it again? Every time it comes out, would you help me spit it out? And I want you to think about that person. It might even be against yourself. It might even be against God. I want you to do the fourth step, and I want you to say in your heart, with that person in your mind, say, I forgive you. I let you go. Say, I release you. I release you. Can you say that? I release you.
being the lastest to do this. Would you say your name? And would you say, I forgive you? You didn't get it right. It's okay. Would you say that? Would you say so-and-so, what your name is? You didn't get it right. It's okay. I forgive you. Father, I pray for us. I pray, Lord, that you would lead us into the freedom of handing over things to you. Father, one of the greatest acts of faith is forgiveness because we let go and we say, God, you are competent to deal with this. I don't have to. Even as we're putting things right with the other person, Lord, we're so grateful that we can do it with a clean conscience before you. We can trust in your leading. We can trust in your guiding. We can trust in your mercy. We can trust in your grace to be sufficient even in our weakness. So grateful, Father. I pray today, whoever had the courage to do that before you, Lord, I pray for a clear conscience sprinkled by the blood of Jesus. I pray for a weight to be lifted off their shoulders. I pray for a good night's sleep and a successive good night's sleep that they haven't had in months or years. Would you give it to them, Lord? I pray you'd start speaking to them by the power of the Spirit. That, Lord, where you have been so silent for so long, God, would you reawaken them in their obedience? Would you start to show them your glory? I pray, Lord God, for healings in relationships here, healings in friendships, healing in marriages, healing in families, healing in work situations, healing in businesses, healing in schools. Lord, I pray today for the healing power of reconciliation. As we lay down our anger, we offer forgiveness. As we give it and we receive it, I pray, Lord, that the kingdom would come. Would you do it to us today? I pray even for those, Lord, who've been on medication Lord, I know I'm a pharmacist. I know how difficult things can be. I know how awkward things can be. I pray even now, over the months to come, you would set people so free. Lord, they even be released from that. You can do it, Lord. You love to do it. We thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.